This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Terry Woodard, who is Associate Professor in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology and Reproductive Medicine at MD Anderson Cancer Center. And she also holds a joint appointment in the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital Pavilion for Women. Terry, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for so, having me. Terry, this is uh, obviously a, a very important and pertinent topic for, um, for us in, in gynecologic oncology. We're going to talk about fertility preservation and strategies uh, for women with cancer. And I was wondering if first you can just put in perspective why management of infertility and premature ovarian failure is becoming increasingly more relevant in the cancer patient population. Well, I think as diagnosis of cancer and as treatment options have improved, we have more survivors. And survivors don't want to just live. They want to thrive. They want to have full lives. And for a lot of young people, that includes being able to have a family. Um, so I think there's a lot more awareness about family building after cancer and therefore more of an emphasis on needing to talk about fertility preservation prior to treatment. So why is the timing of visiting with a reproductive medicine specialist so crucial for women who are about to embark on cancer treatment? So I think early referral is important for several reasons. So one, it gives time for patients to actually process this complex information and it gives them time to actually make a decision. So some things can be done rather quickly. Other things might take two to three weeks to get done, such as egg or embryo freezing. And I think the other piece, especially as it relates to um, the conservative management of gynecologic cancers, um, sometimes the initial counseling can influence their decision on whether they want conservative management or not. So, for instance, I remember seeing, you know, a 42-year-old woman with a long-standing history of infertility who was considering having a trachelectomy for her cervical cancer. And once we did her ovarian reserve testing and talked about her actual chances of having a live birth, she said it wasn't worth it and decided to go with definitive management. So I think it's important on several levels and really allows the patient to take control of that decision-making and make the best decision that is right for them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and certainly, obviously, women diagnosed with cancer are faced with like the physical, the emotional, and even financial stress. Uh, so obviously, this is a very challenging time. Um, what are some of the key components in counseling young women with cancer on the risk of infertility and fertility preservation options? And are, are there any guidelines for clinical practice? So there are several guidelines for clinical practice with regard to fertility preservation. I think the most known are those that were associated or are associated with ASCO, which initially came out in 2006, was updated in 2012, I believe, and then subsequent to that. And I think the important point to realize about that is that it places the responsibility on all of us to inform women of their fertility risks you know, just ask them, are they interested in having children and refer them to reproductive specialists as soon as possible in the course of treatment. Um, my professional organization, the ASRM, also has a set of guidelines that were recently updated and actually took the experimental label off of ovarian tissue freezing. So that's really new and exciting. 
Um, but in terms of the general counseling, you know, when I think about seeing a young patient with cancer and talking about fertility, I think the important points are, A, kind of assessing what her risk is from the get-go, um, looking at what her current ovarian reserve is at this moment, because there's nothing to say that the young woman sitting in front of you doesn't already have a fertility problem that's unrecognized. And then, you know, doing a general review of the options that might be suitable for her. Okay. Um, now, when speaking about the options for fertility preservation, let's start with a discussion on assistive reproductive technology. Um, tell us, please, about the embryo and oocyte cryopreservation. Okay. So, assisted reproductive technology does refer to egg and embryo cryopreservation. Um, both are considered to be standard of care. Both take about two weeks to complete. Um, and essentially what we do in layman's terms is we get the ovaries to produce multiple follicles so that we can harvest multiple eggs to freeze either multiple eggs or multiple embryos. Um, you know, there's a big conversation that I have with all of our patients about freezing eggs versus embryos. Um, and that's a question about reproductive autonomy. So I'll say, hey, you know, eggs are yours, embryos are y'all's. <laughs> so it's something to think about. Um, and, you know, sometimes people kind of chuckle and feel a little uncomfortable, but it does raise those concerns that can come up when people split up or something. Mm -hmm. And then we have these embryos that people are either fighting over or no one wants to use. Um, both are considered to be quite efficacious. Um, of course, the efficacy decreases as a woman ages, so that's something to take in into consideration. Um, but both are readily available. I think the biggest obstacle that patients face is the cost because it's often mm -hmm. not covered. And when speaking about this, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the success rates of, of each of these approaches? And I'm uh, particularly interested in the success rates in the older women. Okay. So when we think of good prognosis patients, and we largely think of them in terms of age, so less than the age of 35, if you do an IVF cycle and you get to a blastocyst, meaning an embryo that's five or six days old, the pregnancy rates are about 55% live birth per embryo. Now that drastically changes as a woman ages. So if you're looking at a 44-year-old woman, you're talking about single-digit live birth rate, somewhere mm -hmm. between 2 to 5%, probably depending on their ovarian reserve. So it's important for patients to know that with age, um, this becomes a lot less efficient. Um, we don't necessarily always encourage older women to freeze eggs and or embryos, um, but if they're willing to do that, you know, we always give them that option. And Terry, up to what age would you consider appropriate to freeze eggs or embryos? Well, all I can talk about is my ideal. Um, there are always patients that kind of, you know, uh, surprise you. So I remember one patient here at MD Anderson who was 44, but she had an AMH that was off the charts. We actually got over 20 eggs from her. <laughs> but once we got down to embryo, she had one euploid embryo and she had her baby. So I will never say no, but I think I just try to do my due diligence in letting them know what those success rates are and that the odds are stacked against them. But if that's something that they want to do and they want to take, we will go for it. But I have personally not stimulated anyone over the age of 45. Okay. Um, and can you tell us about uh, your discussions with your patients regarding the disposition of embryos? What is it and, and why is this really important? 
we will not allow someone to start an IVF cycle without um, completing a consent that includes um, very clear instructions about disposition because um, not only can patients die, I mean, patients, we ask them what they would want to do if their partner divorces them or if their partner dies, so forth. We have a lot of different um, scenarios that we create and we want to know what to do with their reproductive tissues. And it's important to have that laid out um, early on because the last thing we want to do is get in legal battles, which have been seen throughout the United mm. States. And actually, just um, a comment on that, there are some clinics who will now not freeze embryos because of this very reason. They will only freeze eggs just to avoid some of the liabilities associated with that. I see. Um, and how about ovarian hyperstimulation? And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about particularly the risk associated with uh, ovarian hyperstimulation and what is ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome? And also, are there any things that we can do to prevent it from happening? Absolutely. So ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome is the thing that brings chest pain to REs everywhere. <laughs> um, basically, it's a syndrome where... A woman's ovaries likes our drugs a little bit too much, and they release a factor called VEGF that makes their blood vessels leaky. So instead of keeping their fluids intravascularly, they third space, so get fluid around the liver, the lungs. Um, often we have to tap these women, both um, doing pleural taps as well as um, abdominal taps. Um, we really try to avoid it by being smart about who we're stimulating. So the women who are most at risk are young women who have very high ovarian reserve. So the first thing we want to do is be smart with dosing them. So we're going to dose them low and we're going to be a little slower with their stimulation. Um, I will say that um, women are candidates for what is called a Lupron trigger. So traditionally we would always trigger maturation with HCG. The problem with HCG is that it has a very long half-life, so it continues to stimulate the ovary even when our cycle is done. Mm. Um, whereas Lupron gives a very short um, half-life and pretty much, you know, it does its job and it's done. So I had one young woman with lymphoma who was 19. We got 96 eggs. I never heard a peep from her with the Lupron trigger. Um, the problem with the Lupron trigger is that in about 5% of women, it will not work. You will know that ahead of time before you actually go to retrieval, and you can save the cycle by giving them an HCG. But, for instance, women who don't have an intact pituitary access, like women who have hypothalamic amenorrhea, mm. things like that, it will not work. I see. And, and what, what are some of the things uh, one can do to maximize the oocyte yield? So there are a couple things. So, you know, typically young women don't have a problem. We get a decent amount of eggs that they're happy with. But particularly for women with low ovarian reserve, we've learned that we can do back-to-back -back cycles. So there are a lot of things that are oncology-specific in terms of fertility preservation that we utilize to kind of maximize time, safety, and efficiency. So, for instance, if a woman goes through a cycle and she gets four eggs, you know, we used to think that, oh, we have to wait for her period to get the cycle started again. But no, we can do the retrieval and start stimming her again right away, and she might be able to get two cycles in within, you know, four weeks. I see. Now, Terry, uh, a little bit of, uh, of another topic, uh, and this obviously often comes up in discussions uh, with us as gynecologic oncologists, is the issue of ovarian transposition. Um, what is the effectiveness of this practice in preserving ovarian function? So as you know, <laughs> I'm not a fan. <laughs> I think it's better than nothing if 
you know, there's nothing else that can be done, and a woman's really feels strongly about trying to preserve some of her hormonal function. And I actually do think it does a pretty decent job at preserving hormonal function. Now, just because an ovary has hormonal function does not mean it can give an oocyte that will yield a baby. And I think that's really the difference there. So um, it's not something, you know, if a patient has an opportunity to freeze eggs prior to doing this or any of her cancer treatments, I would obviously want her to do that first prior to a transposition. But for pregnancy, you know, there are a handful of pregnancies that have um, resulted after this. Often, you know, they'll use a gestational carrier to carry the pregnancy because if they had to have transposed ovaries, their uterus was probably radiated Mm -hmm. as well and not a habitable environment for an embryo. And is it technically feasible then to perform ovarian hyperstimulation after ovarian transposition? Ovarian stimulation? Mm -hmm. Um, It's not ideal. So the few times that we've tried, it's been rather difficult. So often the ovaries are up high, and traditionally we do transvaginal retrieval, so we want the ovaries lower (laughs) to get to. And the other thing is that acutely, even after just regular surgery, um, you know, she could have a laparoscopic or diagnostic laparoscopy. I find that the ovaries are a little stunned. Um, and they don't seem to respond as well. So you want a little time between any type of surgery and an ovarian Mm. stimulation. And then the other thing is my concern is that when you hike these ovaries up, you're compromising the vascular supply to the ovary. Okay. Now, um, another topic that often comes up is uh, ovarian tissue cryopreservation. And I was wondering, is this something that is available to anyone? And, uh, And what is the success rate after using this approach? So ovarian tissue freezing is now considered to be standard of care, at least by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Um, Over 130 children have been born um, using this method. Um, You know, I think it's a good option, certainly for prepubertal girls who don't have a mature reproductive system that it would allow us to retrieve eggs, obviously. Um, It's also a good option for women who don't have time or don't want to do the ovarian stimulation process. Um, But certainly you're going to want to select out patients who are younger because they have very dense um, follicle activity in their ovaries, and you want to select out women whose ovaries haven't been damaged by lots of chemo before. I mean, the nice thing about ovarian tissue freezing is that even if they got a little bit of chemo, you can still do ovarian tissue freezing. Um, We do have a protocol set up at um, Texas Children's Hospital, where I also work. Um, Just just actually yesterday, we had a four-year-old, and we froze one of her, um, we froze her ovarian tissue. So it is happening, yeah. So this is another topic that uh, I remember hearing about back in my residency days, which is obviously a very long time ago, but this was quite novel at that time. Um, the issue of ovarian transplantation. Is that still going on? Is it? That has really not, unfortunately, <laughs> come um, to fruition, just the ovarian tissue. But it is a novel idea. I mean, now we can do uterine transplants, so maybe <laughs> the ovaries on the way. Right. <laughs> So actually, now that that brings me on to the next topic, which, as you mentioned, uh, uterine fixation. Um, uh, How effective is this? And for for those in the audience that may not be familiar, what is uterine fixation and and how successful is this? So 
So uterine fixation basically follows the idea of an ovarian transposition. Um, essentially, you're hiking the uterus up out of the radiation field, and people have done this a number of ways. Um, I think it's very difficult to come up with a success rate when your denominator is just a handful mm-hmm. of cases. But um, apparently, there have been babies that have been born from uteri that have been um, fixated, and um, I think it probably requires someone with great surgical skills <laughs> and knows what they're doing, because I don't know that I would know what to do with that. <laughs> but, um, you know, if it's possible that it could work, you know, I suppose, why not? Why yeah, not? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and I had uh, the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Raytan uh, Ribeiro. We have a podcast uh, with him describing the, the technique, so for oh, those who are interested, um, he explains it uh, very well. Now, I um, wanted to ask you, what do you find as the most challenging aspect of your work as a reproductive medicine specialist when dealing with cancer patients? So my pro- most um, frustrating um, thing that I face as a fertility specialist dealing in this area is the fact that I feel like we have so many options that we can offer to people And the people are like, great, that sounds wonderful, I'm on board. But then I say, oh, yeah, insurance doesn't cover this. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to pay thousands of dollars. Um, That's very disappointing um, for all of us. You know, I even take care of some of our own employees who have cancer Mm -hmm. that can't necessarily afford to freeze their eggs or embryos and so forth. So I think that's been the hardest part is, you know, people not having access to technology that could definitely make their lives fuller in the long run. And as a follow-up to that, are there any types of uh, organizations that help uh, patients who may not have the the means to to pay for these? Yes, so currently um, through Texas Children's Hospital, um, we partner with LiveStrong, so they will help subsidize the cost um, of an IVF cycle, and they will also give free medications to patients who qualify, like there are certain income requirements and so forth that patients must meet. Um, Walgreens has a program where basically if you have a cancer diagnosis, they will give you free drugs. Um, I also learned recently of an organization called Chick Mission who is trying to expand into Texas. Um, mm-hmm. They're already in New York and a couple other states, but they will, um, after a patient does kind of like a one-page application, they approve it within days, and they will pay for a cycle as well. So there are there are programs out there that can help subsidize the cost of this. That's great. That's amazing. So one last question. Um, what are some of the promising perspectives in, in, in your field as it pertains to cancer patients? So <laughs> I hate to say this because I guess it would probably put me out of business, but I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, along with the whole ovarian tissue freezing idea, you know, would we get to the point where we can take some of this ovarian tissue and learn how to mature them in a dish and just kind of do IVF from there? Mm. Or even more um, interesting would be, can you take a skin cell, you know, a stem cell or something like that and program it into an egg? Um, <laughs> then, you know, you wouldn't need us to retrieve <laughs> <laughs> eggs. And that would be really cool because it would be easy to do and um, accessible to all, but... Yeah, I think there are a lot of cool things happening in our field, and I think it'll. I think I'll have a job for a while, but um, I think this field holds a lot of promise, and people are doing some really cool things with research with regards to this area. Well, Terry, thank you so much. We certainly appreciate your time. We appreciate the contribution you make to our cancer patients, and uh, once again, congratulations. Thank you.